So welcome to another episode of Simulcast and this month in the Journal Club podcast I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you Ben? Yeah good thanks Vic. You're coming to us from overseas from a global perspective on simulation this month is that right? Yeah that's right. I am currently in Kuala Lumpur for a family wedding so I'm yeah huddled underneath a doona trying to hide the uh, sounds of the extended family downstairs so it's all very glamorous. The things we do for our listeners' audio quality. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> it's really hot, just saying. So this, uh, so this month we've got our main article, which Ben will be going through in a minute, and a couple of little pickups from the literature and what's hot in the papers. But Ben, why don't you kick off with telling us a little bit about simulation faculty development? Yeah, great. So this was the second month where we really looked at faculty development in detail in the Journal Club. And the article we looked at this month was called Simulation Faculty Development, a Tiered Approach. And it was by Dawn Taylor-Peterson et al. And it was published in Simulation in Healthcare, uh, ahead of print in 18th of March, 2017. And in essence, the article describes the faculty development program of a really big sim centre, uh, which is called the Office of Interprofessional Simulation for Innovative Clinical Practice, or the OIPS, which is associated with the University of Alabama at Birmingham. So the authors start by talking about the importance of faculty development in sim education, and they support their argument by drawing parallels with other industries, as well as standards from within our own simulation community, such as bodies like the Society for Simulation in Healthcare and the International Nursing Association for Clinical Simulation and Learning. But they note, however, that the majority of faculty development papers out there appear to specifically focus on debriefing a lot more uh, than any other issues. So they kind of exclude other elements of simulation teaching. And they also mention that there's kind of a one-size-fits-all approach most commonly with those papers. So they then describe their development of a tiered faculty development program, which they define as a progressive building of skills with increasing complexity at each level. And it's a little bit like a video game in some ways. So you level up, you get more responsibilities and some powers, you're allowed to supervise more courses, but there are also higher expectations and challenges. And the certifi certification program that they describe contains five tiers, which is Sim Apprentice 1 and 2, and then Simulation Expert 1, 2 and 3. And early tiers, the gateways are kind of more simple, like things like online modules, workshops and observation, whereas more senior tiers have much higher expectations regarding completion of advanced debriefing courses and assessments with the Dash debriefing tool and implementing new courses. And most exciting for me really was that interwoven throughout those tiers and those kind of hard gateway points was also the expectation of ongoing mentor meetings and workplace assessments to provide ongoing feedback and opportunities for growth. The authors provide arguments to support their approach by outlining some benefits which include giving faculty the opportunity to gradually grow in simulation expertise, providing staff with a simulation identity, and more consistent standardization of the faculty's expectations of learners. They also argue that it allows faculty to develop a personalized plan for development appropriate for their role within the service. And as the article closes though, the authors do reflect on the take-up rate of the program within their service, which is around 19%. And they reflect on some of the challenges of finding really the right carrots and sticks, with maybe the carrots being something like having your debriefing courses paid for, and the right sticks being things like not being able to teach on certain courses if you haven't met those expectations, and how to combine those to motivate your staff to participate. Uh, so it's an interesting article. Um, we usually kind of go on from there onto the expert opinion, but the way that things played out, I really just wanted to move on from there straight into the 
the opinions of the bloggers, if that's okay, Vic. So look, the article prompted a lot of reflection on faculty development pathways within our own services, but there was also some interesting resistance in terms of the hierarchical structure of the program. And you acknowledged, uh, Vic, that might potentially reflect the Australasian-North American divide a little bit. We're a bit uh, convicty down here, and we've still got a bit of tall poppy syndrome in us sometimes. And I think it did seem to strike a little bit of a disconcordant um, feel to some of the bloggers in terms of a little bit of anti-egalitarianism almost. But I think overall people really responded to the use of tears as an inherent motivator for self-improvement. And multiple blog posts highlighted a real thirst for self-improvement and admiration for the extensive and really thorough nature of this program. And a lot of our nerdier posters really describe the self-satisfaction they would get from leveling up and feeling that internal sense of progress. And as Seneth described in his comments, you know, the nomenclature is almost like a video game and he'd very much be pushing to achieve Sim Expert 3 level. Those were the same people that had all the badges at Scouts and Girl Guides. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what you're trying to imply there, uh, Vic. They sound like really cool, awesome people to me. <laughs> anyway, so th there was some concern about just uh, implementing these educational standards and, and why it seemed very a noble thing to do. That if you implement too high educational standards for some faculty, you might actually stop clinicians signing up to teach. And that seemed a particular concern for some of us in the smaller centres when you're almost running out of the, the cleaning cupboard where you, your mannequin is stored and the concern that you could potentially isolate staff from participating in these educational programs is, is quite a significant concern. Interestingly, uh, Ben Lawton also highlighted a good point uh, where he said, look, I do find setting standards for qualification to act as faculty on our courses difficult as there isn't really a universal marker of competence in our context. What did you think about that? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And for me, this probably reflects a broader issue in health professional education, and that relates to credentialing of clinicians to be educators more broadly, not even just for simulation. So there's obviously benefits, I think, in terms of credentialing and setting standards. But I think there are two main drawbacks. One is it potentially does decimate your educator workforce and it really begs the question, is a so-called bad educator or rather non-credentialed educator better than none? Mm. And as you said, if you're in a educator poor environment, then you might just think, actually, I don't mind if people don't have the credentials. And then I think you're right, it does beg the question, does competence assurance really improve outcomes? And I think this is pretty hard to prove, but I have to think we have to accept we don't have convincing evidence about that. And in fact, as I was thinking about this, I had what might be thought of as a fairly revolutionary thought. Given that we know that so much of learning outcomes actually depends on the learners, I wonder, should we spend a lot more time on credentialing learners rather than teachers for their sim experience? Yeah, and I think the other thing, and again, this was mentioned by some, is that if you really pursue credentialing to a cookie cutter recipe type thing, and I don't think that's what they were doing in this article, but I guess if we take it to its illogical extreme, uh, it can potentially stifle innovations in the way that people approach their teaching practice. And I'm reminded of Groucho Marx's quote, I wouldn't want to belong to any club that would have me as a member. Uh, I think people can still be good, but don't necessarily fit a mould. And I think that's the risk if you get overly prescriptive. But I think overall, what I really liked about their idea was it wasn't just a series of workshops. It really was a more comprehensive development approach. And I think that's why they avoided the cookie cutter. But at the same time, I think that's probably... Um, 
why maybe some of us thought it was overly prescriptive. I think it's a matter of judgment and context. So look, I guess that the third uh, major theme that came up in the in the blog post was really acknowledgement that this particular approach would be more suited to a large simulation surface rather than the smaller simulation faculty that many of the bloggers come from. I think there was widespread admiration and in some cases, uh, particularly mine, open jealousy regarding the infrastructure that the ORPS team had created. Uh, but there was also an, an acknowledgement that for local hospitals with a small team, a similar approach might not be entirely appropriate, just from the kind of financial staffing and geographical challenges uh, that we sometimes come across. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. Context is everything. And for me, the overall from this paper is that faculty development is a great idea. The quantification of competence is quite tricky. Clearly, there's devil in the detail. How we approach this has to match the context in which we're trying to do that. And I think reflective educators committed to improving is absolutely great. Ticks boxes less so, but I think here we've got lots of insights into the path forward. <laughs> So uh, we were really lucky this month to have all of the authors be our expert commenters. So we had Dawn Taylor-Peterson, Penny Watts, Chad Epps and Marjorie Lee White. Um, and it was very interesting as this thing uh, sort of worked out a little bit like a debate because I sent them our summary of the bloggers' thoughts before they sent me their response. So they kind of had the, the chance to... Uh, rebut some of our concerns. And look, with regard to the big themes that we raised, they, they agreed with us that the tiers do have a level of inherent motivation, but they hope for it to become more, of a more than a game as well and feel that it's a really critical part of their responsibility towards their learners. With regard to raised standards being a barrier to teachers volunteering, they concede it's possible, but argue that these things are really important. At the end of the day, their learner experience is paramount to them. With respect to the program's suitability for smaller units, they argue that while you might need a scaled-down version, uh, faculty development in even a small program is really critical and as such it's worth investing in. And I think you've got some new papers for us to look at, Vic. First of these is a study related to mannequins dying. And I know this is a pretty well-worn path, but this was an interesting take on it. So this is a paper titled, Does the Unexpected Death of the Mannequin in a Simulation Maintain the Participant's Perceived Self-Efficacy? An Observational Prospective Study with Medical Students. And it's by Weiss et al. in BMC Medical Education this year. And this was a French study. And really the take-home point from the article as claimed by the authors are that mannequins dying in sim is okay. So let's have a little bit of a look at what they did. Essentially in the background they introduced three main concepts. One was a brief uh, but I thought pretty solid review of the literature about mannequins dying in sim and particularly focusing on whether the confronting nature of that impairs learning. Uh, and perhaps most specifically the suggestion that pre-briefing might help that fact. They then brought up the concept that even though this is challenging, in fact students largely want it because they do feel poorly prepared and they want to know a bit more about dying before they're actually confronted with it as doctors. And the third thing they brought up, and this is probably a fairly important point in the article itself, is this concept of self-efficacy. And this is something that was uh, developed as a theory and framework by a fellow called Bandura in the 1970s. And it's not quite self-confidence or self-esteem, but it's rather quite focused on the ability to do something. So the definition they give in the article is a learner's perception of their ability to carry out a task. 
and they say it's a decisive element in a person's commitment to complete a task in question. And I've seen other concepts like this in management literature talking about hitability. Do you feel like you can actually do something to take a baseball analogy? So I think that's also worth reading about just beside itself. But in this context, in the article, it's used here as a measure of the students' uh, abilities or their perceived self-efficacy at being able to handle death and dying. So the study question was, does a warning in the form of a pre-briefing about possible death in the sim improve students' perceived self-efficacy? And the way they went about doing this uh, was an observational single centre prospective study. They had 56 medical students who attended eight SIM sessions. And the case they used was good for this purpose. It was a patient with a cerebral hemorrhage who suffered a deterioration and died. Now the students were randomised to two groups. One received a quite specific pre-briefing warning about the death and the other got the usual pre-briefing. So it wasn't without psychological safety, they said the things they normally do, but there wasn't a specific, by the way, the mannequin's going to die. And then what they did was they had a pre-formed questionnaire on this perceived self-efficacy that they gave the students both before and after the sim. So what were the results? Well, the students' perceived self-efficacy improved in both groups from before the sim to after. So, thank goodness, actually doing the simulation made them think they would be better able to handle issues related to death and dying. But there was no difference between the groups. So their result was that it didn't matter whether you got the specific pre-briefing or not. So I'm going to ask for your thoughts, Ben, before I go into my reflections on the discussion. What do you think? Is it a real finding? Look, I think for me, I think it did, you know, identify that we're probably not scaring people by having the mannequin die. I'm still not sure this is the question that we need to be asking. And I think overall, I still think, you know, you're better off bringing it back to the learning objectives of your sim rather than specifically killing a patient for the sake of realism. And I do wonder as well whether that med students are the best group to actually test this theory on anyway, because they don't they don't really have as strongly defined sense of professional identity as, as developed practitioners. So I'm not sure the identity threat that they might face from killing a patient is going to be as significant as a reg or resident who's looking down the barrel of kind of future ultimate responsibility would find. So I'm not sure that they're the right patient group. And I think that's very interesting. And I contrast this with the live, die, repeat that we looked at uh, earlier in the year where, in fact, the mannequin dies multiple times in the emergency residence at Mayo Clinic uh, simulation sessions. And having a couple of medical students in the studio with us tonight, Ben, and I just wanted to say that in the studio tonight with us, uh, as, <laughs> as though we weren't actually under dunas and in the lounge rooms, uh, there are some, I think students do think of it as confronting, so I think it's hard to know what that judgment is. But I think there is a really good point in the article that addresses just what you've brought up, is that there's different kinds of simulated death. One is what we're talking about, where you get told the patient's going to die, and you know that from the start, and where death is the actual focus of the simulation. The second one, which is obviously a risky one, is where the student does something wrong and the patient dies as a result. And that, I think, has got to be the most confronting. But probably the other one is where you sort of give a general idea that the patient's very sick and that the outcome might be good or bad. And in fact, the death was inevitable, whatever the, the providers uh, did. And I guess when I look at the discussion, I think, how do you interpret this finding? Does the specific pre-brief really make no difference? 
or is the tool just not sensitive enough to measure a difference or was there no issue in the first place? And I don't think the study can tell us that, I agree. And, and as they say themselves, in fact, the questionnaire itself might have influenced the outcomes because even though they might not have got the specific pre-briefing, all the students were asked beforehand, uh, how good do you feel like you are at death and dying? And so I think that's primed everybody a little bit to start with. So for me, my take homes, it probably reinforces my pre-existing thoughts, to be honest. Um, I think you should keep doing death in sim if you've thought about why you're doing it. Um, I think you should be sensible. And I think our learners are mostly okay. All right, well, I'm going to go on then to our last article. And this was a fairly uh, big paper, but I think an important one. Uh, it's called Changing Systems Through Effective Teams, A Role for Simulation by Rosenman at a large group of authors. And it's in Academic Emergency Medicine in 2017, July, so just hot off the press. And I think in summary, this paper is a wonderful deep dive into teams and the existing literature on teamwork, uh, particularly in emergency medicine. So that's obviously close to our hearts. Uh, but I think it provides insights even for those who've been doing crisis resource management for years and think we know something about it, I think there's new stuff in here for us. I think the second thing it offers is a series of position statements, which I'll come on to in a minute, about how simulation can best help this, both in terms of training and research. Um, it's not an open access paper, so get onto it through your library or if you're a member of the um, Society for Academic Emergency Medicine. So what kind of paper was it? Uh, it's essentially a summary of the 2017 Academic Emergency Medicine Consensus Conference, so one of these big day or two day meetings, uh, which was called Catalyzing System Change Through Healthcare Simulation, Systems, Competency and Outcomes. So a fairly fancy term. And essentially the folks involved did an extensive literature review, then they have meetings, discussions and workshops. And this is very similar to some other things that we've seen published, such as the Simulation Research Summit, uh, Medical Agent Education Assessment Consensus Conferences, and obviously a little bit of a step up from a uh, Twitter Storify, but the same kind of process, the idea of reflecting discussions that are happening uh, at a conference as a way of publishing some prime thoughts on the issues as we see them right now. So what they describe was their outcomes was that they aim to look at evidence for system level outcomes, i.e. patient outcomes, and they aim to do that by better describing what they call team science and hence better understanding the linkages between team training, team effectiveness, patient care and system level outcomes. And I actually think they've done that, um, admittedly, with all the imperfections that these things have. So again, I'll just pause there, Ben. You with us on that? Does it sound like a sensible way to approach a pretty complex topic, do you think? Yeah, it was a pretty deep dive. I may have cursed your name when I opened up that article and uh, found those 32 pages uh, ready for my reading, but um, I thought it was a phenomenal paper. What, you wanted to do something more fun on your holiday in Thailand? Call me old-fashioned. <laughs> all right. So, look, I'm not going to go through all of them because it is a deep dive. And I think if you're interested in teams, it's worth the 31 pages. It's not a hard read, but obviously there's a bit to it. Uh, 
But essentially the way the paper is structured is it brings up a topic, it runs through the literature, and then it comes out with some fairly definite statements. So for instance, their first one is that simulation-based team training in emergency medicine must be geared towards training individuals to perform effectively in any team rather than attempting to train intact teams. And this makes sense. It realizes why we're different to the Formula One teams. We don't just get the same six people in the resus bay every time. So, and they come up with that position on the basis of their discussions and some literature review. Uh, but the really interesting ones come in the next category, and that really starts to look at what is the nature of team effectiveness. And many of us think about team behaviours, and that's how we've been schooled to think about CRM. Are people communicating? Are they coordinating? Are roles allocated? But there's some other concepts that this paper brings up, things like team cognition, so how teams really do share mental models and think, and things like team affect, what is the culture of the team? And so the position that the authors take on this is that we really need to expand the focus beyond just behaviours to be thinking about these concepts as well as others such as team psychological safety and team efficacy, which actually links back to our previous article, uh, which actually thinks about the shared belief about the group's collective ability to do something. So these are, I think, newer terms for some of us who have been thinking about teamwork maybe in a fairly uh, standard, maybe limited kind of way. I think there are other complexities to it, and I think that's probably what this paper offers us. And it goes between really thinking about simulation as a way of delivering and training people to do better teamwork, but also as a test bed for exploring how teams operate. And I think we've sort of seen that in a few other pieces of work is that simulation is both diagnostic as well as a potential intervention to improve outcomes. So one of the other things that really struck me with this and one of my interests, of course, is on looking at what they call multi-team systems and saying that while Often we can see good behaviours in discrete teams that are focused on a single goal. In our healthcare systems these days, we've obviously got multi-team systems that are working together and using simulation both to explore and improve the outcomes across those interfaces. So again, that's just a couple of little highlights from what is a pretty dense paper. Uh, but were there other favourites of yours, Ben, or things that piqued your interest? Yeah, look, I um, I have to say I really love this paper and it just opened up so many blind spots for me as someone who really has looked into that behavioural aspect of CRM a lot in all these courses without really understanding a lot of the theory behind it and just the surgical precision with which they explained that breakdown of, uh, you know, the ABCs of, of uh, teamwork into affect behaviours and cognition um, and then the sophistication to which they analyse and break down those big headings into further subheadings and stuff was was really illuminating for me and I think as someone who's obviously a lot more the junior both at a clinical and educator level compared to you it was still just a fascinating and, and easy uh, but uh, sort of deep read and I think it's going to open up a lot of thoughts for the future. It also interestingly when we talked about affect and what affects team affect it was actually almost something we were talking about a few months ago when we did that 
Scandinavian uh, closed-loop communication paper where people kept coming back to that idea that when people were from a similar culture that the team seemed to function more effectively. Um, so it was nice to kind of see those ideas that we've been having be, be named and defined in a more sophisticated manner. Yeah, I agree. It gives us a bit of a theoretical basis for understanding some of the things we're observing, whether it's in research or in clinical practice. Uh, one other thing that I liked was towards the end, they get onto leadership and leadership skills and behaviours. And I think they identify something that I've probably thought about but not really named, which is we talk a lot about leadership, but we don't necessarily use the same words. And one of their position statements is we need to actually get a commonly accepted taxonomy of emergency medicine team leadership behaviours uh, because that can guide development as well as simply assessment of skills, which at the moment is hard to do other than through peers giving feedback. But that seems, um, you know, that's an uncommon thing that people do. And I guess the last thing that it finishes with is really this call to say, well, this is all interesting, but how does it translate to outcomes for patients and system level outcomes? And they go through some work by Bill McGahey and others trying to achieve these T3 level outcomes, which is translation to patient uh, care gains. And they talk about a translational science approach, just like the bench to bedside. So to my mind, it also appropriately comes back and says it's not just an introspective navel gaze about teamwork, but rather it is if we better understand it, better train for it, we can actually have better outcomes at the patient level, which is obviously what we're all about. So um, I agree. I think my take home from this paper is... It gets us to think more about the complexity of team science. I think it's encouragement for researchers to direct their efforts usefully. And I think for most of us, it gives us material to use in our debriefs and ideas for training drawn from uh, some summaries of great work that other people have done. So any other final thoughts from you on that one, Ben? No, I just think I'd really want to recommend it. Uh, if there's people out there who uh, are more sort of like me and fairly junior, and, and find it a bit of a daunting read that it's really well worth a look and uh, couldn't recommend it enough. Excellent. Well, I think that's all we've got for this month, Ben. I'm going to wish you well on your Thailand holiday and uh, look forward to seeing you back. We're taking a little break in August. Ben is having a holiday, which is much deserved. Uh, but we've still got a little interview or two for you on Simulcast. So we'll be doing a journal club with a special guest next month. Risa Lewis is going to help us look at simulation and ultrasound. So thinking about how sim might help us both in the assessment and training for ultrasound skills. So we'll look forward to that one. And uh, Ben, we'll look forward to another journal club come September. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm also going to aim to release the first 12 months of the Journal Club as an ebook this month. So we've actually made it to a year, which is pretty exciting. I think the first one was in August last year. That is super exciting. So we're looking forward to that, Ben. And uh, with that, we'll wish you well and uh, talk to you again soon. Absolutely. See you at Sim Health.